1: The Presidencies of the United States is a proud member of the Evergreen Podcast Network. Hello and welcome to the Presidencies of the United States. I'm your host, Jerry Landry. As regular listeners of the podcast know, occasionally I invite on historians and authors to talk about their work. And the conversation for this episode was a particularly delightful one, both for the insightful guest, as well as the fact that we discussed one of the presidents with whom I'm most fascinated. My guest, Lawrence Jurdum, PhD, is currently an adjunct professor of history at Fordham College's Lincoln Center campus. Jurdum is also the author of Paving the Way for Reagan, The Influence of Conservative Media on U.S. Foreign Policy. A frequent writer on American politics, his articles have appeared in the New York Times, the Washington Post, and the San Francisco Chronicle. He lives in Connecticut. His recently released book is The Rough Rider and the Professor: Theodore Roosevelt, Henry Cabot Lodge, and the Friendship That Changed American History, which examines the 35-year friendship between Roosevelt and Lodge, its impact on the political landscape of the time, and how politics in turn would impact their relationship. It was a fascinating read that I highly recommend, and I'll have more information about the book on my website, presidenciespodcast.com. But without further ado, let's get to my conversation with Lawrence after this brief message.
0: This is Peter. And this is Tom. We want to tell you guys a little bit about our podcast. Tom and I met in college, became best friends, and then teachers almost 20 years ago.
1: Lawrence, thank you so much for joining us today.
0: Jerry, I so appreciate being on your podcast. I follow you on Twitter. I see that you probably know more about presidents than certainly myself and and, and probably most people. And I want to commend you for all of the, the work that you do do in trying to get these incredible uh, individuals uh, across to the public and enhance their knowledge. It's really a I know for you, it's a passion and a labor of love. It's also, in my view, a a public service. So thank you so much for doing that.
1: Well, thank you so much for your kind words and congratulations on the publication of your book. And for our listeners, the book is The Rough Rider and the Professor, Theodore Roosevelt, Henry Cabot Lodge, and the Friendship that Changed American History. And I highly recommend I will have information about the book on the website around the release of this episode. But just to get us started and talking about, and I mean, both of these folks, TR and Henry Cabot Lodge are two amazing figures in their own right, and to be able to talk about them together and to talk about this relationship that, you know, as you illustrate in your book, Really did impact the course of American history around the turn of the century. So, to get us started, and, and especially since, you know, I know our listeners probably know more about Theodore Roosevelt than Henry Cabot Lodge. So, I wanted to start with a question about Lodge. Because, though you cite historian Henry Adams, the grandson and great grandson of the two Adams presidents, as being, quote, responsible for giving Lodge his first taste in the combative world of Republican politics, you also note that, quote, Adams feared that by exposing Lodge to the competitive atmosphere of the political arena, he had set his young friend on a course that could only lead to ruin. So, Lawrence, would you mind talking a bit about Adams's influence on Lodge and what role, if any, you see the challenges that his ancestors faced in the political arena as having in Henry Adams' viewpoints on entering political life.
0: Yeah, you know, it's so interesting because First of all, Henry Adams is uh, just one of the great characters in American history. Uh, He is, I mean, I believe one of the great correspondents, one of the great letter writers of the age, if if not the Gilded Age, if not all all ages. I, I think that if you read any of his correspondences, and they're all fortunately available in several books, you really feel as if you're at a wonderful dinner party, eavesdropping on all of the, uh, gossip and infighting and, and sort of snickety and snarky, uh, behavior and, and, uh, and opinions that Henry Adams, uh, had. But Henry Adams was also, um, a, as you said, a, a distinguished fellow. He came from a distinguished lineage of, of, being related to both John and John Quincy Adams and he came across Henry Cabot Lodge's screen when Lodge was a student at Harvard and uh, Adams was teaching uh, a course um, on uh, American colonial history. Lodge had was in the process of obtaining a PhD in history from Harvard. He was one of the first men to achieve that goal. And uh, Lodge and, and Adams took a liking to one another. I mean, obviously, their lineages were very similar. They were both Bostonians. They were both New Englanders. They were both, you know, very mercurial characters, very suspect of anybody who sort of perhaps was not in their uh, social uh, social milieu, so to speak, and they could be quite critical of, of people like that lodge um had lost his father when he was a, a very very young man and 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 it was a, a blow that he admitted in his uh, memoir uh, called my early life that that never really healed and henry adams sort of served as a surrogate father for him and when adams was on uh i'm sorry when lodge was on honeymoon with his wife uh, nanny uh he wrote uh henry adams asking basically you know what should i do what should I do next? I've I've graduated Harvard. I have plenty of money. I've got a, a growing family, but I don't seem to have any uh, any goal, any direction. What do you think I should do? And Henry Adams initially suggested that the Lodge should pursue a life in academia, which is what uh, Lodge basically did. He also obtained a degree from Harvard Law School uh, as well. So there was a lot of Harvard degrees up there on on that wall. <laughs> But Adams was also very politically active. He was a, a Republican in the in the Lincoln uh, idea, a radical Republican, someone who was very unhappy with the state of, of government society. He had, as you said, grown up around stories, and indeed, uh, around uh, John Quincy and 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 uh, the stories of John Adams and. And there was this idea back in the early days, the Republic of Virtue, the idea that that men who were elected to office should possess a sense of integrity, possess a certain level of disinterest. And by disinterest, I mean they're not swayed by one opinion or another. Uh, They weren't uh, swayed by money or any other sort of uh, uh, entitlements so uh, Adams very much believed in this in this idea, and so he's existing in the Gilded Age, which is a bastion of corruption, temptation, vice. There are scandals every day. There was, of course, the very famous uh, Credit Mobilare scandal, the railroad scandal, which tarred so many Republicans during the Gilded Age about railroad kickbacks and favors done to for corporate titans including the 1884 nominee of the party James Blaine and 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 so I think it was very difficult for Henry Adams to exist within this climate he was vehemently opposed to anyone occupying the office of the president who didn't possess some sense of virtue and integrity he was worried when Henry Cabot Lodge became involved in politics, because Lodge found it so exciting and he loved the strategy behind it and he loved the sort of everything, you know, being at the center of things from a political point of view. And he was worried that Lodge would get snake bitten in a sense and that poison of vanity and power would seduce him to the point that it could well. Uh, lead him on a road to ruin. And I think that was something that Henry Adams had seen because he had been living in Washington for decades. He had seen politicians come and go, watched them rise and fall. And he had a great fondness for, for uh, Henry Cabot Lodge and even more of a fondness for his wife, uh, Nanny and for their children. And I think he felt in a way out of step with the times because he had grown up with the virtues or the stories of the virtues of of the adamses and and he looked at the world around him and saw that this was a world that either no longer existed or was quickly falling into disrepair and so he was very concerned that lodge would take the shortcut uh to uh, power which would lead him on a, a road to ruin that could never be repaired
1: absolutely and i think that's one of the most fascinating things that I found in your book is how you you really help the readers to understand that these figures, you, you really put them in the historical place of helping us to understand, you know, this is Gilded Age politics. This is a time where there is so much corruption and talk of corruption. And then you've got these figures like Henry Adams Henry Cabot Lodge and Theodore Roosevelt coming up and in some ways as a response to this and especially like with Henry Adams and for our listeners you you well know we've been talking about the Adams family for quite a while already on the podcast and as you can hear here we're going to be talking about the Adams family for quite a while more but to have them kind of in this space is just I think that's really powerful and really helpful in understanding them and their motivations and and how these careers come about.
0: Yes, it's it's very interesting, you know, there is this kind of contradiction I think uh with particularly people like Henry Cabot Lodge who did possess that virtue, did possess that sense of integrity, but then there was also the Lodge who wanted that political success, who was wary of the Democratic Party taking control and all of the uh, the sort of ill results that he believed the, that party uh, could bring. And, and so integrity was enormously important to Henry Cabot Lodge, but winning was also very, very important. I think you might be able to draw a similar parallel to the elder George Bush, who who had a great deal of personal integrity whose intentions were excellent but in order to rule he had to win power in order to do that and that's kind of the way henry cabot lodge viewed things he believed that he was destined because of this incredible family that he came out of with uh george cabot his his ancestor being the first senator from massachusetts and being an ally of hamilton etc and lodge believed that he naturally deserved a seat At the uh, table of government and uh, leadership and political power. But in order to get there, he needed to win office and he was not a natural politician. He had a terrible speaking voice, which he himself described as something similar to a dentist's drill. And he also was described as someone who had a voice that sounded like uh, the tearing of a bedsheet. And I encourage your listeners to go online and you can actually listen to Henry Cabot Lodge and a few comments about the League of Nations in 1919. And it really does sound like a drill, uh, I want to say, you know, and it just sounds just like that. But Lodge, you know, I think had to reconcile these two sides, that politics is no beanbag, as John McCain used to say, and it's a difficult road, and, and in order to do good things, you need to get into positions of power, and, and And Lodge had to do what he had to do, and he tried to play above board, but he, God knows, most a lot of the time, you know, was, uh, had no problem uh, when his teeth, teeth were bared, he had no problem going for the jugular, and he did that plenty of times uh, in his road to success.
1: Well and it's interesting and especially thinking of that time and this is something that we've talked about in the podcast in previous decades you know throughout your book you talk about the blending of the worlds in Washington the political and the social sphere and you know that's at the time as well as in in previous eras that was so that blending was important and could be influential in the rise of new political figures and so how important of a role do you think that their navigation in the social sphere played in the respective rise of Lodge and Roosevelt in the American political schema
0: well i think it was it was very important for henry cabot lodge and i think we have to go back to uh, the, for Lodge anyway, the disastrous uh, convention of 1884, where he had been selected as a delegate, uh, to choose the nominee of the Republican party. And as I said earlier, in 1884, James G Blaine, the marvelous man from Maine was nominated, uh, by the party or was set to be nominated by the party. And neither Lodge, uh, nor Roosevelt wanted, Uh, Blaine uh, as the party's choice because of this stain of corruption that existed around him. And both men uh, were unhappy with Blaine, but they both had been selected by their respective delegations to uh, vote uh, the way uh, their delegates wanted them to vote and or the way the convention uh, Republicans chose to vote. And they ended up choosing Blaine, which both of them were incredibly unhappy about, but uh, both uh, realized they wanted a seat at the political table. That they could not uh, go outside the Republican Party and do something that the Republican Party didn't like, because that, in the end, would lead to political oblivion, which neither, at the beginning of their careers, would would want to happen. But when Lodge chose to nominate Blaine, which he did because he was in at running for Congress at the same time on the Republican ticket, and he knew if he had chosen to nominate someone else uh, that would, you know, that was a non-starter and he wouldn't get anywhere. But those who occupied the kind of hallowed halls of Beacon Hill and who he had grown up with and who were close friends of Lodge in Boston took quite an exception to what Lodge did. And they ostracized him from Boston society. And he really became persona non grata at places like the Somerset Club and on Beacon Hill and and other Boston Athenaeum, et cetera, and other places. And so when he finally wins his congressional seat and moves to Washington, it's like a breath of fresh air. Nanny Lodge was a marvelous uh, uh, social organizer. She was very much a doyenne within the uh, social sphere of Washington. She knew everyone, as did... Uh, as did her husband. Both had come from Boston. Nanny Lodge uh, had had close uh, relationships with various diplomatic figures and others who had known her father uh, when he was head of the uh, Naval Observatory in 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 Washington. And so they had an in there. As did Henry Cabot Lodge, who knew every single prominent Bostonian who lived in D.C. And so they were able to immediately adapt to the social world of of Washington and by not only having a fantastic time, but also achieving these incredible connections that would serve him well in the years to come. For TR, uh, Lodge was the entree to everything. Roosevelt uh, had come to Washington when he had been selected to serve on the Civil Service Commission during the administration of Benjamin Harrison, a position that Lodge had arranged for Roosevelt because he so believed Roosevelt had a rendezvous with destiny to achieve greatness in the political arena. And uh, Lodge was just determined to get in there. And so Lodge worked it like uh, uh, the great politician that he was to achieve a position for Roosevelt. Once Roosevelt arrived in Washington, Nanny opened all the social doors for him, and, and he immediately adapted and loved it as, as, as TR always did when he had the opportunity to embrace large amounts of, of people. So, the Washington setting and Washington society, because of the fact it was such a small community, because so many people were like Lodge, young and on the make, uh, it was a perfect setting for both men to uh, achieve their path to power.
1: Well, it's interesting because, you know, as as we're talking about that social sphere and how it impacted their political, their respective political rise and, you know, how Lodge kind of served as that opening doors for Roosevelt. You know, one of the things that I think you do a great job of illustrating in your book is that their relationship wasn't just a political one. It was very much a social relationship, and it wasn't just the two men, but their families were so close. And so can you talk more about the women in the two men's lives, their spouses? So you'd already mentioned Nanny Lodge, but then also Alice Lee Roosevelt and Edith Roosevelt.
0: Yeah. And thanks for the question, Jerry, because uh, you're probably the first podcast host I've had who who've act- actually asked me to elaborate on the women in these men's lives. And I've actually I think I enjoyed writing more about Nanny Lodge than I did about anybody. And, and I'm, I was I always say, you know, in talks that I give how disappointing it is that you can't find a really fabulous picture of Nanny Lodge because she was such a great beauty. But she was such a shy woman and in her own way, very introverted and someone who really didn't love uh, the spotlight. I mean, it reminds me of a story that that John Singer Sargent had had wanted to paint her desperately. And and if you go to the uh, National Portrait Gallery, you'll see two uh, paintings by Sargent of Lodge, uh, Henry Cabot Lodge and Theodore Roosevelt. But um, Nanny Lodge just said no repeatedly. And that painting was never done. Um, I think both um, Edith Roosevelt uh, and Nanny Lodge were critical in the success of their husbands. Nanny Lodge actually wrote a letter to Corinne Roosevelt Robinson, T.R.'s sister and her great friend, um, saying that Henry Cabot Lodge would have succeeded on his own without any help from anybody. And that's just completely not true. Uh, Nanny Lodge was her husband's a great advisor when it came to all things uh, written or literary, she would read a speech uh, that he wrote, and if she didn't like it, he'd tear it up, throw it in the fire, and start it over again. And he did that on one occasion at least three times for a very kind of minor speech that he delivered in Massachusetts. Uh, she read all of his books, she critiqued them. She read all of his lectures, she critiqued them. Um, she was the one who organized the dinners. She was the one who organized the parties. She was the one who made the connections. She was the one who James Blaine absolutely adored uh, to the point that Theodore Roosevelt was actually fairly came fairly close to working for him as, as Assistant Secretary of State. Uh, Theodore Roosevelt, the same man who had vehemently opposed James Blaine, and it was because of Nanny's great Beauty, charm, intellect—that that James Blaine actually reached out to her, saying, "Do you know someone who could perhaps be an assistant secretary of state?" Uh, and she said, "Theodore Roosevelt is the is your man." And she uh, and Cabot both tried to get Roosevelt that position, but uh, it 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 failed. But Nanny Lodge stood by her husband. And God knows it was not an easy marriage as I, as I discuss in the book. And I think Henry Cabot Lodge, uh, while being a terrific intellect and a real, uh, uh, aggressive and, and scrabble politician and someone who I came to really admire because of the fact he did not possess that, that great, uh, uh charisma or ability that the TR did, but, um, he could be a difficult, uh, a difficult dude. And um, I think Nanny suffered uh, quite a bit uh, for it, but she stuck right with him, even though there are rumors, as I discuss in the book and, and go into great detail about the, the possible affair she may or may not have had with John Hay while um, Cabot was off campaigning for reelection. Edith Roosevelt, as well, another critical woman who wouldn't, uh, who really, I think played an enormous role in in helping tr succeed you know we all know about tr this this phenomenal personality and this incredible energy and the man who who had you know something like six cups of coffee in the morning before he went to work and you know six a half a dozen eggs in the morning before he went to work and the guy who ran practically everywhere from from one room or one uh, meeting to the next but he also was a guy who's Temperament could be very erratic. He he could be uh, incredibly upbeat, or he could be incredibly pessimistic and argumentative and difficult, particularly when his career wasn't going well. And a lot of, and for most of the time, uh, really up until he became president, I I think he just was constantly frustrated about people who just wouldn't let him do what he wanted to do, and that's why I think T. R. never could have had any other job except be president of the United States and be really, truly uh, happy. But Edith Roosevelt really uh, did her best to sort of try to contain that sort of depressive uh, uh, quality that often would come over him. And she constantly uh, encouraged him, as did Lodge. In fact, that I think is one of the great uh, qualities and benefits of that friendship is that both men supported one another during good times and bad and both women did the same, no matter how difficult uh, their personal relationships with their respective husbands might have been
1: well and it's it 's interesting because and i haven 't i 've done some research on Roosevelt, definitely looking forward to doing more, but to me, it just seems like Edith was such a great match for Theodore trying to help to you know, really balance him out. And it just seems like she plays such a key role in his development. And I really wonder if Alice hadn't passed away, you know, would he have had that support from her that he got from Edith when they were married?
0: Yeah, it's interesting. And I I recall Edmund Morris in an interview, the late Edmund Morris talking about the fact that that TR would have been really stifled if he had been, if, if Alice uh, had not, if the marriage had 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 lasted longer than it did, because I think Alice Roosevelt uh, was very much about, uh, or Alice Hathaway Lee, forgive me, Alice Roosevelt, was very much about the social life of, of New York, very much about uh, the parties, the people, um, just living kind of a, you know, a whirling dervish kind of life of of cocktails and dinners and receptions and was not much of an intellect where Edith Roosevelt really was an intellect. She was very knowledgeable about uh, very, very knowledgeable about literature. And that was, in fact, one of the qualities that tied she and Cabot uh, together. They were both very knowledgeable about Shakespeare, very knowledgeable about other pieces of literature. And that was one of the uh, things that I think made her so comfortable uh, about uh, Cabot Lodge. And she was very savvy, a very savvy uh, individual, not only about social, uh, be it dinners or, or social, the social world of Washington, but also about the sort of men and individuals that surrounded her husband. Um, you know, Edith Roosevelt was someone who had was desperately concerned about money all of her life, mainly coming from the time she was a young girl where her father, who was a 'er ne'er-do-well and a drunkard, had had essentially um, literally made the family homeless to the point where they were going from one relative to another, relying on the kindness of strangers, so to speak. And she was always desperately worried that TR would become consumed with with one job or another that that would never really pay the rent. And she would be and he and the family would be completely destitute. And Lord knows there were moments where between the destruction of his cattle business, between the various depressions that wrecked his, uh, stock portfolio where God knows that was, uh, somewhat close to happen or certainly in her world. Uh, it was a reality that she never, uh, could, uh, not think about but um i think she she gave uh, tr that intellectual partner not only intellectual partner but someone who had some had real spine who you who who didn't uh bend if uh he was a little blustery or argumentative she would push right back and she adored him and uh, he didn't always treat her well i mean leaving her often alone in sagamore hill with pregnant with one child after another and, and, um, but, but she adored him and had adored him ever since she saw him when she was a child. So we, we should be very grateful uh, for Edith Roosevelt in helping uh, navigate TR until the sort of man that he became.
1: And likewise, we're grateful to you for being able to share more about these figures. And I think that's one thing, and especially with a figure like Theodore Roosevelt, who is, such a larger-than-life figure, sometimes the other people in his life just don't get as much attention. And, But I think it's key, and that's, I think, something that listeners of this podcast enjoy is that it's good to be able to go into these other figures' lives and try and understand the role that they played because I don't think you get a full picture of Theodore Roosevelt or Cabot without thinking about nanny and without thinking about edith i I really think that it's key to
0: understanding them yeah no that's very true i mean roosevelt loved to use that phrase i rose like a rocket but you could say he didn't rise alone i mean cabot was really responsible for lighting that fuse which launched that rocket and not only launching the rocket but directing it uh to key uh moments and key opportunities that allowed uh, TR to rise uh, up the ranks of politics in in 18 years, from 1882 or 1883, when he first started in politics, all the way up to 1901. And and it really, uh, without Cabot, I would doubt he would have risen uh, as quickly. I I don't doubt that TR would have become president. I just think it wouldn't have happened as quickly as it did without the help of um, HCL.
1: Absolutely. And turning to Cabot for a moment, because we want to talk about one of the key things in his career, because you discussed in your work, the, the Lodge bill, which would have empowered, quote, the federal government to oversee the integrity of congressional elections. So can you help the audience to understand this bill and its ultimate defeat in the context of the political situation of the time and what it says about this point in Lodge's political career?
0: well it's it 's sort of the bill on the surface is one could say very uh humanitarian and 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 very much sort of ahead of its time and on the surface, it was a bill that was primarily created to help African Americans gain agency in terms of achieving the right to vote i mean during this period, we had the democratic uh, solid south, which uh, obviously Uh, did not look kindly uh, on African Americans, did everything it could do to prevent African Americans from voting. And Lodge um, believed that uh, this was hurting the Republican Party. He did not think it was hurting African Americans. That's not why he did it. I mean, we can sort of sit here and lax all uh, sympathetic or, or romantic about HCL's motives, but The fact of the matter is both he and Roosevelt took a dim view of African Americans. They did not think that they were intellectually uh, adequate or equivalent to white Americans, that they did not have the ability to sort of exercise any kind of sophistication in their own affairs. And so while indeed this bill certainly would have helped African Americans, uh, go to the polls and vote. Lodge did it because he knew that African Americans were a prominent uh, part of the Republican Party, and this would help break the solid South in terms of elections, giving uh, the Republicans greater control uh, of the Congress. This was an idea that the Southern Democrats called the force bill, which was sort of a, uh, a nickname for yet again what they viewed as more Government encroachment and uh, essentially uh, an encroachment on "quote unquote" their the states uh, the rights of the individual states. Lodge was very passionate about this bill, and uh, you know one would think that the Republican Party at this time, being the party of Lincoln, being the party of uh, President Grant, uh, would have focused on trying to put its money where its mouth was, trying to improve the political life. Uh, of African-Americans, but instead it was more important uh, for uh, the Republican Party to focus on uh, the economics of the time, the tariff of the time, which was one of the dominant uh, means of Republican success at that particular time. And so they chose to focus on a bill uh, that was sponsored by the young William McKinley, rather than focus on uh, Lodge's Uh, Bill. So in the end, the bill went nowhere, and it really stung Henry Cabot Lodge. Henry Cabot Lodge did not like people to say no to him. He didn't like being defeated. He didn't like people who said no. He didn't like people who said, you know, we'll try it again. We'll come back later. I mean, it really, quote unquote, pissed him off. And it it would, it would, and and Lodge could be very angry. You know, he, I think he had a, a deep seated anger that at times could really. Uh, drive him to uh, metaphorically push uh, push back on people who who chose to dismiss him and a lot of that had to do with with this vanity that he possessed you know that he had come from this fabulous american family that he was destined for greatness how dare you step in front of what i'm trying to do to serve the the best interests of the nation uh, and, and it really, uh, these things that, uh, happened, these defeats and disappointments could really, uh, sit in his, sit inside him for a long time and make him a really disagreeable person to be around. TR, in fact, uh, went and talked to him about possibly giving a kind of giving a a, ben- a benefit talk for a friend of theirs. And they said, well, you know, you can, Talk about the Lodge, Bill. And, and, and Lodge was like, you know, get out of here. I don't want to see you. I don't want to hear about this. So Lodge was not someone, as I said, you, you, you didn't want to get on his bad side. There, he was a devoted friend, as we can tell with this study of, of he and Roosevelt. And he was a devoted friend to those who stuck by him during the tumultuous year of 1884. But if you crossed him, he was not an enemy that you wanted to have. Because he'd make your life a living hell, and I'm 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 saying this pretty confidently. I just really believe this. I mean, look what he did to Woodrow Wilson during the League of Nations. I mean, he really he didn't like Wilson, and he didn't like the League of Nations, and you know he was going to have things go his way regardless of of what he had to do. Yeah, and
1: it's interesting, and, and I think you do an excellent job of highlighting this in your book you know, in this political rise of Lodge, you know, he does suffer some pretty big setbacks towards the beginning. And and the Lodge bill was also one of those setbacks. But then you get to a point and when he starts to have that influence and is able to start opening some doors for Roosevelt and helping with his rise, and you start to see some of the areas that he was and and roosevelt likewise was also able to influence so one of the things that you mention in your book is you note how both lodge and roosevelt were ardent expansionists in terms of their views of foreign policy so Lawrence what sense do you have of the popularity of expansionism within the Republican party circles as well as the nation as a whole in the mid to late 1890s were Lodge and Roosevelt kind of on the fringe of that or were they more was it more popular
0: I think they were on the fringe I think this was something that was not popular in the Republican party per se it was not terribly popular in the country uh, you know, we are sort of living in a similar time today where there is a conflict within the Republican Party about uh, whether we focus on our affairs at home or use um, our resources and power to achieve a greater democracy and freedom for others. Um, Henry Cabot Lodge and Theodore Roosevelt believed in the greatness of the United States. They were... Uh, what we would call American exceptionalists to the hilt. They believed that the United States had a destiny, that it was very much, as Ronald Reagan said, a city on a hill, that it had a great role to play in the history of the world, and it needed to achieve a certain prominence internationally. And obviously, when um, the uh, book, um, Ma- Admiral Mahan's book, came out talking about the influence of sea power on world history. This was sort of the kind of bone that T.R. and Lodge needed to grab onto, and because it said exactly what Lodge and Roosevelt believed—that that navies were ultimately the core, uh, the opportunity that giving the—I'm sorry, forgive me, I'm getting all tangled up but giving it the navy gives a, a nation an opportunity to stake its claim out in say the pacific or the atlantic and that's how all these great empires had achieved uh, success and lodge and roosevelt believed this is what the united states needed to do uh we needed to stake a claim in the pacific uh, not only from for defensive purposes, but also for international trade and economics. And so, when the opportunity to intervene uh, in uh, to help Cuba in its conflict with Spain came along, and with the help of uh, William Randolph Hearst and other uh, yellow journalists talking about the turmoil that was occurring in Cuba, Lodge and Roosevelt really knew that they had. Uh, an opportunity with ideas like acquiring Hawaii and uh, really kind of expanding the nation's arms, so to speak, and wings essentially to establish uh, this opportunity. But like anything else, if you think about any kind of international conflict, uh, big business was not in favor of something like that within the United States because a war destabilizes economies and creates massive uh, problems. And uh, people who were the money men in the Republican Party were very, very critical of what um, Lodge was doing. And frankly, Lodge didn't care. He really didn't care. As far as he was concerned, those who believed uh, pocketbooks were more important than patriotism had no business uh, telling him anything. And Roosevelt believed the same thing.
1: Absolutely. And you mentioned, and especially, you know, talking about pocketbooks and economy and kind of going, you know, you mentioned the Navy and you really see, you know, Roosevelt really returns to that idea of military preparedness time and again during the course of his career in national politics so would you mind talking about how his experiences in the Spanish-American War influenced his later viewpoints on the subject? Because I think that's one of the things in your book you you help us to understand that this was not only a key moment in terms of his political rise,
0: but also potentially in his political thinking. Yeah, no, Roosevelt was uh, an ardent expansionist. He uh, believed that... Uh, As I said, again, that that America had a great destiny to play in the world, that if American ideas could be translated and transferred around the world, it would make the world more safe and more secure. And uh, obviously, uh, military preparedness to prevent any sort of encroachment by foreign powers, uh, particularly those like Germany uh, and Britain and other empires Uh, was something that Roosevelt and Lodge took very seriously. And he was always very, very concerned that these European empires were looking for the opportunity to encroach upon American territory. And so that's why he was always talking about, uh, we need to be prepared. uh, We need to enhance our military. We need to re-outfit our Navy, uh, all of these different things. And you see this Uh, when we get to the First World War and Woodrow Wilson's continual refusal to uh, focus on military preparedness. And it drove Lodge and Roosevelt completely crazy. And so Lodge and Roosevelt, really, from the time uh, the war began, started this campaign along with uh, Cabot's uh, son-in-law, about saying how critical it is for the U.S. to be prepared uh, for war, that our military resources were lacking. They hadn't been re-outfitted or or replenished since uh, the Spanish-American War. And Roosevelt was constantly writing letters and talking about this uh, with his friends and with Lodge, as well as his own desire uh, to return to the battlefield, leading a regiment during the First World War as he had uh, with the Rough Riders during the Spanish-American War. And Roosevelt was constantly obsessed with achieving success on the battlefield, something I believe came of uh, because his late father chose to hire substitutes to fight in the Civil War, something uh, that his mother had been very, very, very passionate about desperately afraid uh, that her husband was going to have one or ex- essentially several potential confrontations with her Southern uh, relatives, which was something that she couldn't couldn't bear. And in the end, uh, T.R. Sr., uh, to his regret, I, I think, uh, acquiesced. And, and uh, T.R. Jr., their son, uh, never forgot this. And in fact, he writes in his memoir, he never brings up uh, that his father didn't serve, but he does say when he talks about the spanish-american war i didn't have to hire someone else to do my fighting for me so uh, this was sort of a something roosevelt was always trying to exercise from his system and i don't think it ever he ever really got it out of his system because of the anger he displayed after he uh was turned down for uh, serving in the uh, in in the first world war the frustration rather that that occurred absolutely
1: And it's interesting, you know, the Spanish-American War, of course, his service is the rough riders that really launches him into the place that would ultimately, you know, as we know, with hindsight, that would ultimately lead him to the presidency. But Lawrence, would you mind sharing more about TR's desire for the presidency and his reluctance to accept that vice presidential nomination in 1900? As well as Lodge's constant lobbying for him to accept the role of VP, that was that was a really fascinating part of your book, and so I'd love for you to be able to share some more about that with the audience.
0: Yeah, when we get to uh, obviously after the Spanish American War, Roosevelt is the uh, is the queen of the prom, so to speak, or as Alice Roosevelt Longworth used to say you know the bride at every wedding the corpse at every funeral he's sort of the center center of the world at that moment and lodge in fact communicates to him in a letter well you can basically because of this incredible performance you've had you can more or less ask for anything uh, that you want and and lodge wanted desperately uh for roosevelt to serve in the senate uh, with him but that opportunity was closed off And uh, by the time Lodge even attempted to think about it or discuss the idea, the idea of Roosevelt being nominated or and or elected for governor of New York had already surfaced. And uh, Roosevelt loved being governor of New York. It was exactly kind of what he wanted. He had the opportunity to be a chief executive where he was the one making the decisions and he was the one uh, uh, creating uh, new legislation to focus on uh, the urban poor or on the environment or pushing back on uh, the corporate titans of the Gilded Age. The problem was that During the Gilded Age, of course, you had the, it was still the time of political bossism and Thomas Platt, known as the easy boss, because it was very kind of quiet, demure decorum, uh, but still a man who could exercise a tremendous amount of power, um, wasn't keen about what Theodore Roosevelt was doing. Um, in fact, I, I think Roosevelt was never really comfortable in the Republican party, uh, or certainly the Republican party of Henry Cabot Lodge and Thomas Platt because he was always suggesting that the Republican party do things that it essentially went against their political interests to do and so by the time you get to 1900 and uh, President McKinley's uh vice president passes away uh, Lodge is passionately uh, lobbying TR to uh take uh the vacant spot on the ticket in 1900. Roosevelt is apprehensive about this idea. Uh, He wants to remain as governor, but he knows it's not going to happen because Platt, quote unquote, wants to get that bastard out of New York. um, And he's doing everything he can to uh, manipulate the situation so that Roosevelt will really have no choice but to take the vice presidency. But uh, Roosevelt doesn't want the vice presidency. You know, as John Nance Garner said, Roosevelt basically viewed it as a warm bucket of spit. You know, there was nothing for him to do. He was, in, he would be in a gilded cage with, with nothing to do, sit in this beautiful office and just sit there while the wheels of government turned round and round without him having any kind of involvement. Edith didn't want him. Uh, to take the position either. She knew that this lack of activity could send his personality into a tailspin. Bammy Roosevelt, his devoted sister, actually had an argument with Henry Cabot Lodge over this at his at her house in Washington, where she basically, more or less, threw Cabot out of the house when uh, he accused her of being basically out of her head and, and talking nonsense uh, about how uh, T.R., her own brother, would... Would, would waste away in a, a position like this. But in the end, uh, there was nowhere else for Roosevelt to go. Lodge was not confident of uh, what might happen except for the fact that it set up Roosevelt for the presidency uh, in 1904. But between 1900 and 1904, Cabot just said, well, you'll just have to deal with it and things will be okay. And of course, when Roosevelt accepts that nomination and accepts that opportunity, Cabot writes this very uh, interesting letter, which uh, is almost very foreboding and very prescient, where he says, you know, no one can tell what will happen in four years. And boy, was Henry Cabot Lodge right on that particular point.
1: Absolutely. And that's one of the things, you know, with the new series that we just started on the vice presidencies of the United States. You know, we're going to come to some figures who I think are well suited to the vice presidency and can assert their influence without necessarily being at the center of everything. But Theodore Roosevelt is not one of those people. And so it's it, it's interesting to think about if he had had a full term as vice president what that would have looked like. But of course, you know, as we know, history played out differently and he ended up being at the center of everything as president. And like you said, Lawrence, it it just, it seems like that was the best position for somebody like Theodore Roosevelt.
0: Yes. I, you know, the, the whole vice presidential situation, Roosevelt was really was, you know, like, a, a you know, kind of a, a, a wild animal in a in a cage. I mean, he or a tiger in a cage. He, he couldn't do anything. He couldn't go anywhere. He couldn't exercise any power at all. In a way, it was like um, Lyndon Johnson being uh, vice president under JFK, this man of incredible personality and and charisma and power and an understanding of how politics worked, yet he was locked away in this beautiful room uh, where he could do virtually nothing. And he said, oh, I like uh, President McKinley, um, TR says, I enjoy uh, conversing with him, but they just, they just won't give me anything to do. And so he, of course, would do little things. He would hold conferences. He would go spend time at Sagamore Hill. He'd write letters. He, he believed his political career was over, as, as Alice Lee, I'm sorry, uh, uh, Alice, Alice Longworth uh, uh, wrote, uh, that, that basically his, his professional career was, was finished. And, um, I, you know, I, I, I think it probably pained Cabot As well, because he saw this incredible, vivacious uh, friend of his basically just depressed and 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 just uh, you know kind of of uh, nothing you know after this all of this effort that he had put into to try to achieve some kind of uh, success.
1: Well, and and it's interesting because in the influence that Cabot had had on Roosevelt's career and rise. Up to that point. And then, when he becomes President, as you note in your book, there's kind of this shift because now Theodore Roosevelt is the one who has the more the most power. And you note in your book that Lodge's influence over President Roosevelt was overstated by opponents of the Roosevelt administration. But he still did play a role both as a leader in Congress and of the National Party, as well as serving as a diplomat representative in negotiations with Britain in 1903. So would you mind discussing how Lodge fits into the history of Theodore Roosevelt's presidency?
0: Yeah, no, it, it was a very um it was an interesting thing. There had always been this gossip going way back uh about the firm of Lodge and Roosevelt, meaning Lodge was always the senior man, Roosevelt was the uh inexperienced uh junior man, and and even in the letters, if you if you kind of examine them uh from eighteen eighty four up really up until the maybe in, even into the vice presidency, there is this desperation on the part of Theodore Roosevelt to get back in the game, uh, find an opportunity, find a way to maneuver. And he was always asking Cabot to help him do that. Do you know of this? if this is available? Uh, keep me in mind for that. Uh, don't forget about your friend in uh, New York, uh, who's just hanging out here doing nothing while you're uh making your way up the political ladder but then once roosevelt becomes president there is what i say in my book a changing of the guard there is a shift there and it's it's a big shift and i think the best example was a conversation that roosevelt had with a journalist at the time he initially took the the uh, the oath of office and and this gentleman said well mr president we're all kind of wondering in washington what uh, is the relationship going to be like uh, now that you're president in terms of senator lodge we everybody knows that you're all you're both very close and and many people and i'm paraphrasing here Uh, think that Lodge has this sort of carte blanche to the White House where he can come and go as he pleases and, you know, make requests and demands, et cetera. And, you know, was really kind of controlling a lot of things. And Roosevelt, you know, with Iliad, without missing a beat, looked at this journalist and said, look, look, you don't understand. That's not our relationship at all. Uh, Lodge does not run me. I run him. And I think that says a lot about the frustration that roosevelt um had not so much maybe with cabot but with this image that cabot was somebody who was controlling a lot even back in uh 1884 there were there were rumors that Henry Cabot Lodge had this type of Svengali like influence on Theodore Roosevelt, and both men actually laughed about it. You know, Lodge actually said, you know, you couldn't pressure Theodore Roosevelt to do anything. That he didn't want to do, and and Roosevelt actually wrote a letter to uh, Nanny where he kind of turned uh, he created kind of a sort of, uh, kind of created an informal newspaper in the way he he wrote the letter with a headline saying, "Oh, the evil Cabot Lodge has this hypnotic effect over the young and unassuming Roosevelt," you know. And so they thought it was very funny, but you know now we're in the presidency and it's the big time, and it's not so funny. Anymore. But Roosevelt still loved having Cabot and Nanny around. I mean, as you said, he consulted with Lodge on foreign policy, particularly in regards to the Russo Japanese War. Uh, they still had dinner together. Both men enjoyed horseback riding. Speaking of, you know, we talked about commonalities at the beginning, and both men uh, rode uh, quite a bit together in Rocky Park. They took walks. Uh, Lodge was always very interested in what was going on, but he still wanted to have his hand in the game. And Roosevelt didn't always allow that to happen. Um, and, And it's sort of interesting, because going back to the beginning of the podcast, when we were talking about virtue and integrity, Roosevelt did not want to be viewed as some kind of, of corrupt politician who was being Uh, you know, who was offering and giving political favors in exchange for power, because everybody, you know, would have assumed, oh, well, Cabot did make the man president. He is uh, sitting on that phone, uh, which was a big cartoon in the Boston Globe, where Henry Cabot Lodge was portrayed as, quote, the operator, and Roosevelt was sort of this this puppet. So, in a way, uh, while Henry Cabot Lodge Probably was annoyed by the fact that he at times was not always consulted, or his appointee was not always considered. Roosevelt was doing him a benefit and himself a benefit by showing that both men uh, were playing within uh, within bounds, except in terms of things like patronage, where uh, Roosevelt would uh, you know occasionally uh, throw Cabot a, a carrot, so to speak, but most of the time. You know, he he tried to stay away, tried to distance himself from Lodge and and the many political favors that Lodge um, wanted from him. I'll give you one more anecdote. Um, there was a, uh, a a note that Lodge received about the centennial of the city or the, uh, the bicentennial of the city of Brookline, Massachusetts, and he asked. Um, he assumed that Roosevelt would naturally write a proclamation. And he said, oh, I've told the mayor this. And if you can just, you know, rip something off and send, you know, it'd be great. And Roosevelt wrote a letter back pretty quickly. And he said very sternly, he said, my dear man, don't ever ask me for something like this again. I get it all the time from everybody. I don't need to get it from you. And I don't appreciate it. And of course, Lodge was really taken aback because he said, I was only kidding. And now I I think anybody who knows anything, even the most basic about Henry Cabot Lodge, the man had no sense of humor. He never joked about anything, let alone something as serious as politics. So I think he was really a little bit, it was kind of a brushback in a way, you know, to use a baseball term, Uh, you know, you you need to step back and you need to give me a little room because I I can't have this sort of thing happening.
1: Well, and it's interesting, and and we'll come back in a few moments to talk about another of those bumps in the road in terms of the relationship between Roosevelt and Lodge. But I wanted to take a moment to turn back to something that we were talking about earlier. Um, You had mentioned this with the Lodge bill. And when Roosevelt becomes president, this issue comes up a couple of times in his presidency because you know, as you say in your book, when the issue comes up in their respective careers, moves that Lodge and Roosevelt make towards supporting civil rights were typically couched in achieving political advantage rather than being a true reflection of their ideologies on the issues. So I was wondering if you would mind taking a moment to talk about what you found in your research with regards to Roosevelt and Lodge's views on equal rights for American people of color.
0: Yes, it it wasn't it it wasn't uh you know, uh, the, these were two men who admitted that they did believe that African Americans had a place in the American family, so to speak, in the American tapestry, and that they should be citizens of the country. But then there was the issue of voting. And again, uh, they didn't have confidence in the fact uh, that African-Americans had the ability to control their own affairs. Early on in um, their relationship, Lodge and Roosevelt uh, nominate an African-American from a former congressman, in fact, the former speaker of the House of, uh, of the legislature in Mississippi, uh, to be the chairman of the convention. And the gentleman whose name now escapes me and I can't remember it, um, did not really want this opportunity and roosevelt and lodge got us said you know what you are a republican you're an american uh you need to participate in the in the process and we need you to uh move this convention forward but again it wasn't something that was done uh to enhance the reputation Of African Americans politically, it was done to try to destabilize the nomination of James Blaine. And while this gentleman was successfully elected as president of the uh, convention, and both Lodge and Roosevelt gave these incredibly eloquent speeches, uh, again, uh, we really can't take that as some kind of great sincerity as to their um, support of uh, African American. Uh, agency we also had uh the moment with Booker T Washington where um neither Washington nor Theodore Roosevelt believed in removing uh or both of them believed that segregation uh, remained an important uh idea remained an important standard within uh the United States Booker T Washington always very much criticized because he was viewed or criticized by people like W.E.B. Du Bois for this kind of gradualist view uh, that Washington had, where he said, don't rock the boat, let's just uh, move along, do what we can. Uh, We need white America as an ally uh, to help us along. Uh, and and we can move very slowly and voting is simply out of the question. However, uh, Booker T. Washington was also a very powerful political voice in his own right. We can almost say he was uh, an African-American political boss in a sense in terms of things like patronage within the African-American community. Roosevelt, to his credit, did hire quite a number of uh, African-Americans to serve uh, in the lower, uh, reaches of, uh, government, uh, post in various, in the postmasters, et cetera, and other, uh, positions. But there, of course, was that situation where he offered, uh, uh Washington the opportunity to have dinner with him in the White House. And of course, uh, the South went completely ballistic, uh, both, uh, Lodge was very supportive of, of Roosevelt in doing this and he you know uh, Lodge who had there was no love laws between Henry Cabot Lodge and the uh, gentlemen of the former Confederate states uh, who he absolutely hated and believed uh, were responsible for the carnage and turmoil that had brought the country to virtual ruin uh, from 1861 to 1865 Roosevelt obviously uh, didn't expect the blowback that uh, he received, and obviously, uh, going back to his sort of uh, lukewarm view on civil rights, never had Washington to the White House again after that. Later on, uh, in uh, the uh, I believe it's the nineteen oh oh, I think it's the nineteen oh four convention, where again a similar type of bill comes up. Or idea comes up about giving African-Americans greater agency and the right to vote. Lodge literally writes to Roosevelt. He says, you know what? This is an idea. It might be a good idea, but it's not a realistic idea and it's not going to happen. So politics continues to play a role in terms of taking that risk of giving African-Americans their rightful place at the voting booth. All about trying to balance uh, Republican power. So you know, one can say what they want about Henry Cabot Lodge and Theodore Roosevelt in terms of matters of race, but in terms of the way I look at it, it wasn't a good one.
1: Yeah, and and it's interesting. And again, I think that's something that comes up time and again in your book is how these these personal views or, or personal tendencies influence their political aims and careers. And, you know, you see this even further into their careers, you know, after Roosevelt leaves the presidency and we get to the 1912 election and there's so much that's been written and focused on in the, how this election impacts and destroys the relationship between Roosevelt and William Howard Taft, who succeeded him. But as you point out, it had an impact on the relationship between Lodge and Roosevelt as well, because though they had been so close over the years, this election cycle in 1912 led to a split between the two. And as you quoted Lodge as writing at the time, quote, I knew, of course, that you and I differed on some of these points, but I had not realized that the difference was so wide. So would you mind addressing some of the key points in their respective ideologies that had been a constant over the course of their careers that ultimately caused this rift between Lodge and Roosevelt?
0: Yes, I I think some of it for both men, particularly for Lodge, was political and some of it was ideological. Lodge was a conservative, a conservative to the core. Granted, he, we could say he was a Burkean conservative in terms of a belief in moving things slowly or gradually in terms of of legislation, uh, et cetera. Roosevelt, I believe, was always a progressive. He uh, was more comfortable uh, within a progressive environment, even though he would, would constantly uh, poo-poo the... Uh, progressives. Uh, progressives wanted him to stand on a progressive platform when he, run, when he ran for governor. Uh, Lodge is like, don't even think about doing that. Don't even think about going outside the Republican Party. You're not going to get anywhere. And Lodge and Roosevelt were both political realists in regards to that. But there were certain things that were going on as the presidency progressed that really unnerved Lodge. Most of, for most of the Roosevelt administration, Lodge was really the ambassador uh, to the conservative wing of the Republican Party, particularly those money men who were so responsible uh, for donating uh, the money that kept the party in business, so to speak. So when Roosevelt did things uh, like the square deal, uh, and got up and gave these kind of harangues and and, and powerful oratory uh, moments where he condemned big business and um, talked about that government needed to play a greater role in examining what these corporations were up to. It really chilled Lodge to the bone and uh, I have to use that old phrase that that people uh, used when they were talking about President Trump and they would say you know don't Listen to what he says. Watch what he does. And this is sort of what Henry Cabot Lodge would communicate to the uh, the moneyed interests within the Republican Party. And say, look, he's just you know blowing off some steam. He's not really going to do uh, this and that and this. Um, but there were things that. Really drove uh, Lodge nuts and got him into a little bit of of trouble with his constituents. And on one particular occasion, when Roosevelt gave all, came and gave a speech about the Square Deal, Lodge was having dinner, staying over at a uh, at a prominent uh, member of the, the Massachusetts judiciary, Supreme Court, and the man who was a prominent person in the Republican Party and said, "You know, you need to have a." Uh, Roosevelt, back off on this this square deal stuff. And Lodge wrote Roosevelt a letter and said, you know, there are people within the Republican Party who are becoming very uncomfortable with what you're doing and what you're saying. And 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 some of this, you know, went right over Roosevelt's head. Uh, sometimes he listened, sometimes he didn't, sometimes he would just, you know, rant that these uh these uh, individuals of great wealth, uh, you know, were essentially had tin ears and and really had no clue and had didn't have the public touch that that he did. And then there were times where he would listen and and he would back off. But ironically, when we get to 1912, it is really Henry Cabot Lodge who's responsible for indirectly the destruction or temporary destruction of that relationship because he is the one who induces roosevelt to return to political life theodore roosevelt was very happy in retirement he was very bitter about the way his presidency had ended particularly in in regards to the way the uh, republican congress had handled his second term where they had really gone out of their way to stymie everything he had tried to do, and when Lodge is writing him repeatedly about Taft and the uh, lack of confidence that the party country has and the party has, now Roosevelt needs to come back to save the day. Roosevelt's like, "Why should I? Why should I come back and help these people? They didn't help me." But you know, again, Lodge is very a very good salesman and very good at whispering in Roosevelt's ear, and of course, Roosevelt does come back, and then he starts going on his uh, soapbox, so to speak, in places like uh, Kansas and other parts of the country where he's reflecting the progressive ideas of Robert La Follette, the senator from Wisconsin, about things like direct election of senators, the fact that uh, members of the judiciary can be recalled by the public uh, if they don't like a decision that... uh, comes down from a particular judge. And then Lodge is shocked by this. And he's also shocked by Roosevelt's argument that uh, the government has the right to confiscate private property if they believe that uh, the eminent domain rule and that they believe that uh, it's necessary uh, uh, for the good of the community or for the nation. And Lodge is just like, you really just have to quiet down and 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 uh then when roosevelt runs for uh president in the primary with taft and he continues to communicate these views uh lodge just completely uh cuts uh the uh cuts the relationship off i mean he basically says that he can't support or cuts the political relationship off. The personal relationship remains, and and to Lodge's credit, uh, he really goes out of his way to keep that friendship with Roosevelt going to the point where he literally says, "I'm not going to let politics interfere uh, in in this important relationship which I so value." He still uh, supports uh, William Howard Taft. He still arranges uh, for Taft to win the Massachusetts primary in 1912, something that I do not know if Roosevelt knew about or or didn't know about. I was never able to figure or find anything on that. Edith Roosevelt was livid at Henry Cabot Lodge and his good friend and Roosevelt's good friend, Elihu Root, both of whom uh, worked on Taft's uh, Behalf and used to have nightmares about uh, Elahu Root and and absolutely really hated him and and uh, Roosevelt never forgave Elihu Root uh, either as far as I as far as I know but um, this was a difficult uh, patch that both men went through there was a lot of name calling uh, on the part of both of them uh, in terms of the other uh, Roosevelt got up in a speech in Massachusetts and said that. Um, there is one of your senators was responsible for stealing the nomination from me uh, in, uh, in 1912. Lodge has got, gets up at one point and says, you know, people are tired of Theodore Roosevelt. They're sick of hearing from him. Uh, and eventually, though, unfortunately, they do come back together after Roosevelt is nearly killed uh, in an assassination attempt. Uh, Lodge writes two very heartfelt telegrams and soon they're back together. And then they come back together even more so over their mutual hatred of, uh, of Taft's successor, Woodrow Wilson.
1: Uh, and, And it's just, it's such a fascinating story of the relationship between these two men over the decades and just how it folds into so much of American political history of the time. And so as we're wrapping up our conversation, Lawrence, I want to give you an opportunity to share with the audience, you know, first of all, what was your, what was the most surprising takeaway about either of these men or both of them in the course of your research? And also, you know, now that this book is published, coming out, where's your research leading you moving forward?
0: Well, I, you know, I, um, I loved both Roosevelt and, and Lodge. I, I often would think, you know, what it would be like to meet them. And I suspect that, that I perhaps would have had a better uh, rapport with President Roosevelt and, and Senator Lodge. But I think if I talked to Lodge and, and, and really kind of knew some things about his positions and bills and speeches. I think that he might've, you know, loosened up a little bit. I was talking to somebody else about Henry Adams. And I said, well, wouldn't you just have loved to have been seated next to Henry Adams? And she very kind of dryly said, actually, I'd rather be, have been seated across from Henry Adams, <laughs> not necessarily next to him. Um, But I I came to admire both of them. I think the thing that I came to realize about Theodore Roosevelt was that his life was a lot harder than I thought it was. And I'm not speaking materially so much as um, someone who was really trying to find his way. I think he had a lot of disappointment. I think he was very frustrated uh, in trying to achieve uh, political success. I think he just so resented people who would constantly get in his way and dictate to him about what he needed to do. And he was in, in such a kind of, he always seemed to be in, in some kind of supportive role for such a long time, even when he was governor. He still was not his own man. He wanted to be, but Platt didn't allow him to be. And, and as police commissioner, he had very little power to, to do a lot of the things that, that he wanted to do. He was always at the mercy of, of another master so to speak. And then when he finally becomes president, then he can really, as he says to John, Hay, now I'm really going to let things rip, so to speak, you know, when he's about to be sworn in for the second time, because now there's nobody to tell him uh, what to do. And Lodge, I, I came to admire as well. As I said earlier, I loved his tenacity. I loved his networking. I even loved his rage, you know, the fact that he was just so kind of comfortable with who he was that that he just didn't care, Uh, certainly in letters as opposed to being, you know, out in public, but who knew over the fact. And I love the fact that, you know, when in 1917, he was confronted by a man, you know, 30 years his junior and accused of being a coward, he punched the guy right in the face. He had no problem. With that, so I loved the tenacity, I loved the hard work, and I loved the loyalty that existed between uh, these two men, and 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 it really does show you that uh, even at the darkest moments during that 1912 uh, campaign. Lodge really went out of his way to kind of follow that old adage that President Obama used to use, He said, you know, two people can disagree, but that doesn't necessarily mean they have to be disagreeable. And certainly there were some disagreeable moments, but that friendship held held together. And I, I, I think that was something Lodge really treasured, as did, as did Roosevelt. And it really does show you that if two men who have a similar vision, and are willing to work hard and 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 use their uh, determination. And there's opportunity. And uh, a moment is right. They really do have the opportunity to change the world, which is what I think Lodge and Roosevelt really did. In terms of my own future work, um, I am kind of working on something that I had worked on a while ago uh, in regards to the first George H.W. Bush and in terms of presidential character, and uh, how important I think the qualities that Bush displayed throughout his life were in terms of being reflective of other presidents uh, during the course of our history. And so I'm working on something in regards to that. And then I have an idea about writing a single volume about the formative years of Dwight Eisenhower. So we'll see if that, any of these come to fruition.
1: Well, hopefully they do because both of those, you know, they are figures that I've been interested in. Of course, you know, I'm interested in pretty much all the presidents, but Eisenhower and George H.W. Bush are two that I do find myself coming back to time and again. So as you move along with that, you know, hopefully a new book will come out of one or, or both of those. And I'd love to have you on presidencies again to discuss. But in the meantime, for our listeners, this conversation has just scratched the surface of Lawrence's current book, which is The Rough Rider and The Professor, Theodore Roosevelt, Henry Cabot Lodge, and The Friendship That Changed American History. I cannot recommend it enough. It is a wonderful read. And Lawrence, I cannot thank you enough for your work, as well as your time and the insight that you've provided to us, to our audience today. So thank you so much.
0: Thanks, Jerry. I really enjoyed the conversation and I really enjoyed how thorough and knowledgeable you were about uh, the book and Roosevelt and Lodge. And I loved your your questions. They were terrific.
1: Always glad. In, and that's one thing that I, you know, it's, I always enjoy reading presidential history, but to have the opportunity to come up with questions and be able to talk with authors, historians about their work. It's just, it's a wonderful treat. So thank you so much and thank you to our audience. Thanks so much again to Lawrence Sturdum for joining me for this episode to discuss his book, The Rough Rider and the Professor, Theodore Roosevelt, Henry Cabot Lodge, and the Friendship that Changed American History. There is so much more in the book that we didn't have time to discuss, so I highly recommend picking up a copy wherever you get your books so that you can learn more about the amazing and impactful relationship between Roosevelt and Lodge. I'll have a link to more information on the book on my website, Presidency's Podcast, that's all one word, dot com. There, you can also find past episodes of the podcast, links to information about all of the US presidents, and information about how you, yes, you, dear listener, can support the work of the Presidencies Podcast. Whether you sign up as a patron, fulfill one of the books on my research wish list, or leave a rating and review, I cannot thank you enough for your support in this labor of love. I'd also love to hear from you. Please feel free to send me an email at presidenciespodcast at gmail.com, or you can connect with me on social media. I'm available at Mastodon, Post, Blue Sky, and Facebook as Presidencies, on the formerly known as Twitter as Presidencies89, and on Instagram and threads at Presidencies Podcast, all one word. Thanks so much for listening, and until next time, stay safe and healthy, be kind to one another, and take care, dear friends.